This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. With me today to discuss healthcare price transparency is Matthew Albright, a former CMS staffer and currently Chief Legislative Affairs Officer at Zealous, a company that quote-unquote connects streamlines and balances and clarifies healthcare payments. Matthew, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, David. I uh, appreciate being on. You bet. Uh, Mr. Albright's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, as odd as it may sound, up until very recently, healthcare prices were largely, if not altogether, unknown to patients. For those insured, this problem was academic, though it did present a significant moral hazard problem that allowed healthcare prices, moreover in the commercial market, to increase much faster than the rate of inflation. This explains the drug price negotiation provision in the recently passed Inflation Reduction Act. After years of debate, federal policymakers have recently implemented pricing rules. As of this past July 1, most group health plans and insurers of group or individual health insurance are required to publicly disclose pricing information. As of this past January 1, providers were no longer able to surprise or balance bill patients for care they unknowingly received from providers outside their insurer's network. And as of January 1, 2021, hospitals have been required to provide clear and accessible pricing information about the items and services they provide. Though price transparency is sound in theory, what effect, if any, it will have on patient or consumer decision-making, reducing price growth, and influencing care delivery innovation are largely unknown. With me again to discuss healthcare price transparency is again Mr. Matthew Albright. So that is background, Matthew. I have to say, I've been studying healthcare for at least four decades, and the um, description of your company, Connect Streamlines, etc., I candidly have no idea what that means. So before we formally begin, <laughs> let me ask you, what does Zealous actually do? So, so I'd, I'd have to say, um, um, you think of um, all aspects of the life of a claim, uh, you know, from the business end of things. Uh, zealous is involved in um, from the time the the claim gets submitted to the health plan to it uh, the payment remittance advice going out um, and and we actually sit uh, so that we have both providers and payers as clients um, which which I think gives us a kind of unique uh, viewpoint of, of policy issues out there uh, because we we're, we're, we're very sensitive to the to the to the uh, to the swing, slings and arrows of, of both sides. So I, I don't know if that clarified it for you, but we've got an, an, uh, multiple solutions uh, which divide, which which deal with the life of climate and claim. And, and just recently, we've also um, dipped our toe into uh, membership empowerment, membership communication between payers and members, uh, with the acquirement of a, a new uh, a membership-centric. Uh, a company called Sapphire. So we're kind of uh, all over the base place, but mostly in the business of healthcare. Uh, and again, with the life of a claim. Okay. Uh, just prompts me more to consider doing an interview on your industry. Um, so let's leave okay, it at that. Good. good. Well, it's a whole different, <laughs> whole different world. You'd be amazed. I, I didn't know 
it existed uh, when I was working in, as a regulator. So, David, it's, it's a whole different world. Right. All right. Well, let's move on. So um, I have to ask this question to begin uh, more formally. And then, as I said up front, that it's only up until recently that uh, the public has any idea of, of what um, they pay for a product or service in healthcare. So in your mind, my question is, what explains the fact that the healthcare industry has kept its prices confidential or refused uh, to not make their prices publicly known? I mean, I'm sure, I mean, this is clearly the first question that always occurs to me when we talk about price transparency. How do we get to 2020, 2021 um, without finally coming to the conclusion, well, maybe it'd be a good idea? Right. So like, why has it taken so long? Right, right? exactly. Like every other industry has it, right? Right. Um, well, I think the, the reasons it's taken so long are probably the same reasons why we're seeing now that the hospitals struggled to implement it. Um, health plans probably did it better, but it's kind of like the first kid going off the high dive. You know, once the hospital did it, the plans saw how easy it was and, and went after them. It wasn't easy at all. But I'd say there's, there's three uh, kind of, um, uh, three kind of um, uh, hills that they had to climb. Um, one is... Um, they're against the policy, right? Um, the, the black right. box in healthcare has been these negotiated rates. Um, and, and it really has been kind of like, um, you know, the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. Uh, and so, so to, to make all those things obvious and, and to hear what the hospitals actually said during their, their lawsuits against the transparency uh, regulations, um, that would put them at a, a disadvantage. And you didn't hear it as strongly from the payers, but there are certain people in the payers that thought that as well. If you if you publish the negotiated rates, and that's not um, that's not rates that the patient or the consumer would pay. That would be negotiated rates, which are the the um, rates that each payer makes with every hospital out there, every health system out there, or every physician out there. If you publish those, then that puts you at a disadvantage as as any business to business. Uh, negotiated contracts would put any industry at a business uh, uh, at a disadvantage. So that's really what they were fighting against. I would say they had less um, argument about about giving prices to the consumers. But that brings us to the second uh, kind of obstacle, which was hospitals just didn't have those prices, uh, right? Um, first, they they didn't have um, the data all in one place. Everybody's contracting everything out, right? So. So if you think about the modern day hospital, and I'm sure this has come up in other aspects of, the, of your podcast, uh, David, you think about a modern hospital, it's much more like a, a shopping mall than it is a single company, right? We, we think we're in a single company when we go in for procedures or we have something happen in the emergency room, maybe spend some time in inpatient. But in fact, it's more like a shopping mall in that there's just a, a bunch of groups of physicians that are in the hospital that give uh, um, provide healthcare service, but they're not directly. Um, there's no um, sharing of prices or, or anything else. It, it's as if I went into you know a shoe store in the shopping mall and I said, "Hey, can you tell me how much my you know prom suit is going to cost me? I need shoes. I need a hat. I need an outfit. I need some underwear." And the shoe store would be like, "Well, we don't know." And you go to the head of the head of the shopping mall, they say they don't know, right? Because um, a hospital is the same kind of way. There's all these different little businesses and they don't know what each one is, is, is charging. So it's really hard for them to actually come up with the data to say specifically, well, this is how much things cost. And of course, the costs are different as, we're, as we see, right? As, as they're implementing this transparency rule, 
the costs are different from payer to payer, depending on what kind of payer you have. And, and, and it's not just insurance company to insurance company. It's also like if you have a small regional payer, then they're paying something much different and they'll expect you to pay something much different than a large national carrier mm-hmm. with that same physician or that same hospital. So two things. One, they're kind of against it from a, a kind of a, a principle in terms of seeing the negotiated rates out there. Two, in terms of providing the prices to consumers, it's, it's much more difficult than it sounds, right? <laughs> They've never been asked to do that. They really don't know how much things cost. And, and even the um, plans don't, aren't really sure how much things cost. It's, it's amazing uh, to see how much of, of healthcare is still negotiated. Uh, we see, see this especially with out-of-network, but even in the in-network with those negotiated contracts. Uh, and I think the third part of that is... Um, uh, and, and maybe this is more timely as, you know, hospitals have had a couple rough years uh, lately, uh, the pandemic, staffing shortages, uh, decreased margins and revenues. They really didn't have a lot of bandwidth uh, to think this through, to, to think about how they were going to do it. You know, we heard that, you know, uh, January 1st, 2021, when the uh, compliance date happened, there was a lot of C-suites in the hospitals that, that weren't even aware that this was a rule. It just didn't rise to their level of priority. So I think there's, there's all the reasons why um, uh, we haven't seen it so far. You know, I, I would counter, David, that it's kind of incredible that it's happening at all, but we can get to that next. Well, it's interesting you say that, but let, and I may I may get back to that. Um, this conversation always begs for me the Uwe Reinhardt comment, I'm sure, about which you're familiar. Uh, the finest healthcare in the world costs twice as much as the finest healthcare in the world, which is um, yeah. prices are are unbelievably varying, um, both on the on the provider side and the payer side for the exact same product or service. Um, so it's, uh, to say the least is complicated. I was, my follow-up question, I'll, I think I'll pass on it, but just to note it, um, uh, what explains or what's the rational rationale, if any, for widely varying prices? Um, um, I, I guess the, the real answer is, is because they, providers can vary their prices and so can insurers. And part of this complication or what, uh, makes this complicated, despite uh, either payer or provider saying uh, they don't want to make public uh, their prices for competitive purposes. I'm sure you're very familiar with HHI scores, Herfindahl, Hirshhorn index scores. The market is highly concentrated. And in fact, the people from the early research in hospitals who aren't really complying are those who are larger, more consolidated organizations with less competition. But let's move on. Um and, and we'll get to, um, uh, well, let me just ask this question. I'm going to go out of order here. So just so the listener knows what we're talking about. And that is, um, what, so for, I'll just give an example or an answer, then you can provide uh, the example for hospitals. So for health plans, and this gets very complicated, Weedy, but I'll, so I'll just be brief. They have to provide a machine-readable file containing uh, sets of costs for items and services. Um, they, um, they have to, they have to have an internet based price comparison tool, allowing an individual to receive an estimate of their cost sharing responsibility and an internet pricing tool, allowing an individual to receive an estimate of their cost, uh, beyond their cost sharing 
responsibility for a specific item or services from a specific provider or providers for all items and services. So that's generally what's the um, requirement for uh, insurers. Do you want to uh, give me the answer for what, again, generally are hospitals now required or what information are they required to provide? Yeah, and I would say I would uh, parallel the two because they're basically uh, required, uh, both payers and providers are, are required to offer the same two things, and, and you mentioned them. One is a complete data dump of information on every specific item and service, well, not every item specific and service, we'll get to that in a minute, but um, items and services, or at least the most shoppable items and services, um, which um, the hospital provides and how much each plan, um, each payer with which they have um, a, a contract with, how much they they uh, charge that um, payer. So this is a data dump. It's not meant for consumers at all. Payers have to do the same thing. They have to do a, a, a data dump of every uh, item and service that, that, that they pay for, for every provider out there that they um, uh, contract with. And in, in addition, the payers also have to uh, provide information about the out-of-network providers and how much they pay the out-of-network providers. So if you think about this, these are just massive, massive um, mounds of data, which are completely incomprehensible to the consumer. And, and that's on purpose. The regulators did that on purpose. The second part to both of their transparency rules, both the payers and the providers, is that price transparency comparison tool, if you want, if you will. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the requirements are slightly different for each one, but basically it's a place where a consumer can go, whether they're, they're insured or not, uh, and to a hospital and look up an item and service and see exactly how much it's going to cost based on their payer, uh, based on, uh, or lack thereof, and based on uh, what item or service they want. By the same token, uh, that price transparency tool has to also uh, be uh, uh, supplied or offered by the payers. Uh, same kind of thing. You're a member. You go into a um, you go into a uh, price transparency tool for the payer, and you, you type in what 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 um, what item or service you are are looking for, and they'll give you probably a, a number of payers, a number of providers who offer it, and like you said, what the financial responsibility. Uh, 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 that you might have. And, and so there's two aspects, I think, which is important to remember from both transparency rules. One is the consumer-facing aspect. And you'll find that um, a number of hospitals and certainly a number of payers, especially the national payers, they've had those kind of price, price transparency uh, tools uh, for a while. If you've got a smaller, maybe employer group health plan, you might not have had that access to that. But those have kind of been out there for a while because they're kind of consumer based, uh, consumer facing. The the tough part, the tough lift, I think, for both hospitals and for plans were those machine readable files, were those total data dumps, and again, just a lot of information to aggregate, a lot of space uh, to store it. Um, and, and a difficulty with kind of standardizing exactly what uh, the government wanted. So there's kind of the, there's the two aspects of the transparency rule. Okay, thank you. Uh, just, just on the insurer, just to be clear for the listener, uh, there is uh, further uh, trans, insurer transparency regs that will be implemented in sub, subsequent regulations in 23 and 24. So on the insurer side, this is still uh, this issue is still evolving. Per your point about uh, utility and not 
particularly useful for patients or consumers. In, in theory, again, that that certainly does not sound good, but the reality is that the research to date shows that patients or consumers don't shop on price. They moreover shop on recommendations, what who their provider recommends, say, if they need subspecialty care. Let's go, and, and I you probably saw this, uh, Matthew. This was just out uh, today, and I, I had a chuckle when I read this sentence, and I'll read it. Uh, this was in Health Affairs uh, today. Large employers have sometimes struggled to get access to their own claims data from third-party administrators, hindering them from being more actively involved in developing uh, cost containment strategies. Um, um, but then it goes on to say that um, uh, the utility of this uh, information, and I'll read it to you, is largely inaccessible and indecipherable to anyone, and here's the phrase, without access to a supercomputer. Um, but but let's, let's, let's try to get productive here. So if, if the patients are largely not in the equation here, the real opportunity here for transparency is for employer-based coverage. So my question for you is, what's your understanding of how um, uh, empl- employer-based plans are going to use this in negotiating uh, their annual contracts? Keep in mind that employers cover, what, north of 150 million Americans. That's right. And and I do think that, you know, I, I would disagree a little bit about the supercomputer uh, necessity there. Okay. I do think I do think that you know it's these price transparency tools. Like I said, they're good, and, and it's good that they're being required. Because absolutely, consumers should be able to look them up um, right away. I think the real money, the real revolution, I would say, that's going to come from healthcare is going to be in these machine readable files. Yes, they're completely like humanly unreadable, um, but um, they are going to have such uh, such nuggets of gold in them that are going to lay bare um, how we pay and price for healthcare in this company, that it's going to completely change, um, I think, how we do reimbursement. I think not just group health plans, but how any insurer, any group, uh, any health plan is going to um, look at reimbursement um, and and, um, certainly, like I said, negotiations. It's also, you know, when you add in the No Surprises Act transparency uh, provisions, uh, so setting aside the balance billing provisions, there's a whole bunch of, again, nuggets of um, of requirements uh, that push this transparency kind of policy initiative even further in the No Surprises Act that we're talking about. You add all that together, and um, it, it's really going to open it up. And, and what the regulators actually say, and it's, it's, it's actually, and we can talk about this too, it, it's interesting and also kind of exciting, and it kind of pushes it forward that all of this is happening at the same time as interoperability, right? Two completely separate policy initiatives, but they're all kind of coming to fruition, Mm -hmm. interoperability and transparency at the same time. And it's all about freeing the data, right? So, right, you were at the government back in the 2010s, right? And they're all about, let's free the data. Let's just get all that information out there. And people smarter and companies, um, you know, more agile than, than the government is going to figure out what to do with all this data. I think that's at the, the point that we are at, right? Um, the, the, the regulators of the, no, of, the interop, of the transparency rules, they actually invite the innovators and they call them innovators. Come on in, scoop up this data, look at it, crunch it, figure out how to make it usable, completely unusable now, but 
we've seen in other industries where there are some amazing amazing groups out there and yes maybe supercomputers out there that know how to make reams and reams of, of sometimes unstandardized data uh, make it usable uh, to consumers and not just usable to consumers but as you kind of implied usable back to employer plans or uh, usable back to hospitals to think more about their reimbursement strategy to think about more about where they're headed and of course the real money is getting that information in front of consumers. And, and I also want to point out, um, you know, something that gets kind of overlooked sometimes, and that's the fourth estate. That's, that's you, David, right? That's the, the industry trades, uh, the New York Times, the podcast, which are going to, uh, the articles are going to start coming. Um, we've already seen it with Kaiser Health and others where they're just picking up, you know, a few of these machine readable files here and there and going through it. We're going to find all sorts of things uh, that are going to be, you know, rank from egregious to brilliant, right, on both the payer and the hospital side. Um, so I think, um, again, the data has been freed. I think that uh, these machine-readable files are going to be crunched. It, it might not happen, right, next year. Uh, it might take a two or three years for the dust to settle and for them to actually figure it out. But uh, I got to tell you, uh, companies are already uh, charging in and, and going through this data uh, to do exactly what the regulators expected. And I think it's going to change many things. It's certainly going to contribute, again, like I said, strategy to pricing and reimbursement on the payer side. But it also is going to kind of, um, kind of usher in uh, a period where, where I can't even begin to predict how it's going to change healthcare. And, and I think, again, this is also coming at the time um, uh, at the end of a pandemic, right, where we're seeing a shift uh, from uh, the four walls of traditional healthcare, the hospitals, the doctor's office, and, and we're seeing the shift out to bringing healthcare to the patient. And part of bringing healthcare to the patient is bringing them data that they can use to make their choices in their homes when they're getting their healthcare brought to their homes. Um, so I, I think it's the, the, not just taken by itself, the transparency rules are interesting and they might move the um, needle taking at the point where interoperability is freeing the, uh, freeing the clinical data that um, the, uh, my, the digital natives, uh, right? My daughters are uh, expecting everything to be on their phone. Uh, they want uh, DoorDash for dinner and dinner to come to them. They don't understand why I want to go to a restaurant. They're going to feel the same way about healthcare. Um, and and the, the general shift uh, from, from the four walls uh, to the home that we're seeing with telehealth and, and everything else that the pandemic kind of pushed us towards. All of this is happening simultaneously. And I think, I think there's going to be a ground shift. I, I think there's going to be changes. I, I don't know what the revolution looks like, David, but I think it's revolutionary. Well, I, I agree that this is the promise, uh, not certainly fulfilled, but this is the promise that I'm sure, you know, Niall Brennan, you know, the Healthcare Cost Institute, that this is Yes. This creates enormous opportunity for those sorts of organizations to uh, manipulate the data, synthesize the data, make meaning from the, out of the data, uh, all to the benefit of, you know, you name your, whether it's the patient population, employer-based plans, uh, innumerable others. So, um, but we're not there yet. And this leads to my, and I'd be remiss, this leads to my uh, next question realize we're only a year uh, or more uh, into this. Uh, hospitals, of course, uh, pushing almost two years. 
What's, what's your sense relative to compliance? There's been a fair amount of research and, and reporting on the fact that uh, hospitals um, have been at, at it for about uh, 20 months. There was a study that showed uh, between July and September last year, less than 6% of disclosed prices as required. Uh, CMS has, has worked towards increasing the fines for noncompliance. Um, is this just a matter of hospitals were unprepared and they're struggling through to get there? Or is this just uh, they're being passive aggressive? Or, And I realize, as you well know, we both well know, rolling out regular regulatory policy, new policy, takes a while. It can be pretty chaotic and messy and ugly for the first few years. So is it nothing more than that? Yeah, and, and you know, I hate to <laughs> give a, a muddy answer, but I think it's uh, all of those. All the above. I think you absolutely had. All of the above, right? You absolutely had hospitals that did not want to do it, that would, were saying from the beginning that they were going to pay the fines right. uh, rather than uh, comply, right? Um, others, I think that, like we talked about, it, this was a struggle, right, to get this information, uh, to aggregate this information, to understand where this information was in your accounting. It really is like no other business uh, in the world where, where, where you, you just go to your, uh, you know, ask for a report from your accounting about how much we're paying for everything. This, it just, hospitals aren't able to do it. So, so I would, I would, um, I would agree that, it, that it hasn't, the hospitals haven't been compliant um, to the point where many people expected them uh, to be compliant. On the other hand, uh, I think CMS went around, uh, went around this the right way, right? They, they sensed the, 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 the reluctance for whatever reason for many of the hospitals, they came out from the beginning and said, look, we're going to give you a little chance to do it. We're going to start auditing right away. We're going to get a little chance to do it. Um, they said right from the front, we're going to start with warning notices. Then we're going to go to requests for uh, corrective action plans. And that's exactly what they did. Um, they found 400, they put out 400 warning notices to hospitals, put them on notice that, that they were being watched. Of those 400, about a little less than um, um, half of them uh, went on to get corrective action plans, which means there's half of them that were still dragging their feet and kind of ignored the first warning. And then, like you said, right, we got down to just two that were actually fined. Um, right, and, Georgia, and right, yeah. from those, right, in Georgia. My sense from those two was that they really were kicking and screaming and, 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 and said there was no reason for the price transparency tools that they could just be called and uh, customers, patients could call and, and they could respond at that level. So I think of those, of those two were one of the ones that were really digging in. So that's not to say that every, every hospital has now got the machinery readable files and their price transparency out, but I think they've come a long way. And, and the thing that I'm seeing, and, and you see this on the payer side too, is um, I, I think um, at least for, for those that are, are paying attention on the hospital side and the payer side, like a light goes off at a certain point where you think, okay, I just got to check this box and make sure I'm compliant. I've got to put out these machine readable files and whatever they look like and price transparency tools. But then there's a switch where you realize that, um, that no, you, you actually have to embrace this, right? Uh, again, you've had hospitals that have been doing price transparency tools uh, for a while. Now, this is a whole other set of requirements that have been put up on them, but they see the market edge in being consumer-centric and being patient-centric and being transparent uh, about their tools, uh, about their prices. Mm -hmm. And the payers are the same way. They whined and, and, and a little bit about all the work that this would have to do, and it seemed like a big data thing that they didn't understand. But there are 
payers out there who are who I had I was talking to a, a small regional um, payer and um, they were disappointed in the transparency rules and in the No Surprises Act because they said we've been doing it all along. We've been very consumer um, centric. We've been very consumer facing. We've had these price transparency tools for a while. We're a little upset that the government has now required them because that was our market edge, right? That's what kind of mm-hmm. that's how people um, shop for us and, and, and came to us. Uh, so, so um, that's all to say. It, 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 yes, not as much, not as quickly as we would have hoped, uh, but far better than some people expected. <laughs> Right. You know, and per your, your latter point about those who had been doing it, these are always the few you'll find who are among the enlightened self-interest who actually see an advantage uh, 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 in the market uh, to get out in front on this. Let me, I, I want to throw in this um, question. States, of course, have authority. Um, in, and in fact, before, for example, no surprises, it was passed late, wrote along with larger legislation December 20. Uh, I think half or more states already had uh, legislation on the books relative to surprise billing. But in this instance, uh, relative to hospitals, uh, for example, Colorado, I think, is more noteworthy than a few other states in that uh, they're prohibiting uh, hospitals, for example, from from pursuing medical debt collection if the hospital hasn't uh, complied with the price transparency. Um, and they're prohibiting uh, hospitals from suing patients. Um, or reporting a patient to a credit agency if they're not. So there are some sticks that the states are wielding. I'm assuming you have, uh, what, what's your general sense of the extent the states are involved and how effectively? So I think um, you're, you're absolutely right. The Colorado one was very interesting, right? Because it tied the transparency to medical debt, which is, of course, a huge, uh, huge problem. problem. Yeah. The other thing, right, horrendous, um, um, and the other thing that I think um, happened with the No Surprises Act, it actually put a, a light, a spotlight on the state laws as well. So what we're seeing is a lot more consumers and I want to say providers from, from our standpoint, which are more cognizant of the state laws. You know, um, some of the states, California, New York, they've had these laws on the books for a while, but I, I think people kind of forgot about them, right? But then when the No Surprises Act came out, then suddenly it's like, oh, yes, and we've got a law too. So I think there's the first thing. There's more awareness, uh, hopefully from the consumer standpoint, but certainly from the hospital standpoint, that there are certain situations where you cannot balance bill and you're either going to fall into the state or you're going to fall in, uh, into the feds. Um, uh, I think the other interesting thing is, and we saw this in uh, Massachusetts and Indiana especially, where um, the other group, of course, that's reading these machine-readable files or paying attention to what's being uh, put out publicly is is the local and state uh, governments, which are circling around. And, and maybe they don't have the leverage right now in terms of legislation, but they're circling around and they're sending warning lo- notes, warning letters to their hospitals saying, hey, uh, you're a nonprofit or you're our, our main um, safety net hospital. Why are you charging these prices? You got to put a rein on some of these prices that we're seeing. So I think that's going to be very interesting over the coming um, years to see how the state and local governments are going to take some of this data 
and kind of leverage that. I'm seeing it mostly against hospitals, right? Because those prices are so blatantly uh, right in there, right? Where you see, and you, you, you address this in the background at the beginning, right? Where you see, you know, one hospital in a health system and then the other hospital in the same health system just down the road with hugely varying prices mm-hmm. for exactly the same uh, uh, health um, item or service. And I think you will start seeing the states kind of uh, uh, shape up and not shape up, but kind of stand up, take more notice of it and, and actually use it to leverage better pricing. I appreciate it. So thank you. And you, you, you rang the bell because this is the issue of state purchasing power because, of course, states are typically large insurers. They obviously provide health care coverage for their state employees. So they, they have a they have a uh, an interest, a parochial interest. And I, I, I was intrigued by your, your comment. You didn't use the phrase, but this really connects the dots pretty quickly or easily to community benefit, right? You're a not-for-profit hospital. As this data becomes more transparent, um, you know, what does it say about your legitimacy, uh, your tax-exempt legitimacy, uh, and how, does, how, how to what extent, if at all, is your community benefit uh, offsetting uh, say, uh, your pricing. Um, so, a uh, good point. So with that, uh, Matt, we're generally, uh, at it. Um, just maybe per your opening intriguing comment about that this is at all happening is surprising. What, let me just ask you clearly, what did you mean by that? Well, I, I do think that, you know, this has been, um, again, this has been the secret box. Uh, we saw the Affordable Care Act that got, um, passed with, with, industry and many others kicking and screaming. And that was just really about accessibility, right? Yeah. Uh, getting more insurance. Greater for, access, right? Right? Yeah. And, 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 right. So so really pricing was almost like the third rail or reimbursement was like the third rail. I, what's amazing is you have bipartisan support. First of all, <laughs> right? for me to say that in this day and age, mm-hmm. bipartisan support for anything is amazing. But bipartisan support for transparency, for the No Surprises Act, for interoperability, um, the disagreements are 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 not between parties. They are between maybe the provider side and the payer side, uh, but but um, they are in the details, right? There is this this push, this groundswell, not groundswell, because it's been going on since since the the younger Bush administration, right, with meaningful use mm-hmm. uh, to free the data to get that information out there. Um, and so I think it's amazing that it's happened just because of the circumstances of our, our politics these days about how healthcare care uh, reform is so difficult to pass. But it looks like it's happening, again, by small legislative actions like the transparency rules, the No Surprises Act and interoperability, which seem and, and even the telehealth, right, which seems somewhat disparate and, and not related. But when you pull back and, and you think about what's happened during the pandemic and where our healthcare is ha- held headed, uh, it, it's it, it, it's it's almost circumstantial. It's almost it, it, it's headed into the realms of destiny and legend, right? It, it's all happening at the same time, which to me is kind of amazing. I, I think any one of these. Uh, initiatives, if they'd happened on their own without everything else going on at the same time, they might not have had made made much of a dent. But I feel like the the snowball is starting to to get bigger and bigger. Well, I'm, I'm, I appreciate that point. You know, they're complementary, uh, greater than some of their parts, which is something federal healthcare policy makers almost never appreciate or recognize or work towards. So that's an excellent point. So with that, Matthew, generally appreciate this overview. Um, 
Certainly it'll be interesting to see how this evolves over the next year. So maybe we can revisit then. So thank you again for your time. Thank you, David. Exciting conversation. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.